as I said, I had a, a, a bit of a troubled childhood um, with, with, with death and alcoholism in my immediate family. And, and um, I, 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 I think that the, the violin probably saved my life. It, 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 was, it was like that skateboard uh, going down the street, but I, with the violin, I could, kept, I could keep going. I could transport myself to better places, and uh, and the music was powerful enough for me, and the journey with the instrument was everything. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. My name is Joe McHugh, and one of the first musicians I interviewed for this series was the legendary fiddler slash violinist Mark O'Connor. He was performing with his wife Maggie at the Wintergrass Music Festival that is held each February in Bellevue, Washington. It was quite late when we began the interview and didn't finish up until past midnight. The fact that Mark grew up in Seattle, I felt infused his recollections with those emotions of homecoming that can deepen our understanding of who we are and how far we have traveled in life. Mark begins part one of this podcast with the story of a child blessed with an exceptional talent for music and the people who sacrificed to help him develop that talent to the full. Mark O'Connor, born August 5th, 1961 in Seattle, Washington. So give me just uh, some background in your family, in particular whether you know, there are people even going back a generation or two or even discovered that might have played the violin or the fiddle or had some musical, were touched by the, the passion for music. My mother did family tree studies on my both sides of the family, and, and we couldn't find a musician, neither side. And we were able to trace hundreds of years and so I just came out of nowhere. My uh, mom and dad were dance instructors, so they were artistic, and I'm sure that helped a lot. But um, it was really interesting, even the Irish side. So I have Dutch side and an Irish side, and even the Irish, we couldn't trace the musicians. Um, there were a lot of good singers in the Irish family, but um, no instrumentalists. So um, somehow I got this mutated music gene <laughs> that, uh, that was uh, just luck and fate. And, you know, I wonder with the Irish, too, uh, the difficulty for some Irish families, I mean, the real deep poverty. My grandfather would sing, didn't play any instrument. There were no instruments in my family, but he lilted, and he, and he was one, two generations away from Ireland. His, his father's one who came over. And my grandfather grew up in Hell's Kitchen. But I remember him lilting. He would just start singing a song. And a lot of those families couldn't afford a violin. And so they were still fiddling, but they were doing it with the, you know, the, the voice. Hmm. Very interesting. My, my Dutch side um, is the, um, the one that dates back in America the, the, the furthest. 1609, um, basically the... The discovery of the Hudson was that era of Dutch, the, of my ancestors, the ancestors that came over. And so right now I live in New York City, and that's where my 400-year-ago uh, family settled in New Amsterdam. So I have, I have a sense of, um, of a, uh, a deep connection to American culture through my music that's um, never-ending and perhaps... Uh, perhaps those family lines have a lot to do with it. So I know at the concert tonight you you told about basically how you came to the fiddle, and I'd love to have that as part of this. So if you want to talk about how the fiddle came into your life, and uh, and then every once in a while, you know, you might even say what the physical fiddle was, mm -hmm. you know, or and how you felt about that particular instrument. But it's it's still about the music. Yes, my my mother wanted me to play uh, the guitar. And um, she was a big fan of Segovia. She was a, I think she took piano for a couple of years, but she was a classical music 
aficionado, and, and she really, um, re- I mean, that's basically what we listened to on the family stereo was classical music. And she wanted me to be in the um, same uh, pathway, uh, uh, walk the footsteps of Segovia. And so she sought out a, a classical guitar teacher here in Seattle, and he was the first person to graduate with a, a degree in classical guitar from the University of Washington, Calvin Christ. And I took from him for quite a, f- a few years. But at the same time, my mother wanted me to spread the wings some, and she was also a big fan of flamenco music. So I, uh, we, we found a, a Peruvian guitar teacher who taught me flamenco by ear. So I was learning classical guitar from notation and uh, by ear uh, flamenco. And then um, started watching the Johnny Cash show in 1969 on television. And that's where I discovered the, uh, the fiddling of Doug Kershaw for the first time. And I was so inspired by it. I started to beg for a fiddle from, from my parents. But, you know, even with uh, this amazing two guitar lessons a week thing, we were a very poor family, and they just could not swing a second instrument. And I had already made a pretty big investment into the guitar uh, with my uh, lessons and practice. And I just got a pretty good instrument, a Hernandez. I was eight. (laughs) Um, And so I just got into Johnny Cash songs and uh, learned them and sang them and played them on guitar. So that was my folk music element coming in right there, along with the classical and the world music. And then three years I asked for a fiddle and finally got one at age 11. So it's, a, it's an amazing journey to, to think that a, a child that was musically talented like I was, took, it took three years to even get my hands on a violin. What was the violin? Well, when I first when I first got it, it was a fifty dollar fiddle, and I got one without um, music lessons. We we didn't identify a quote fiddle teacher yet in Seattle for us, so I picked out the first tunes on the fifty dollar fiddle from the Doug Kershaw record, which included Jolie Blonde, which <laughs> you know we we perform today at Wintergrass, my wife and I, Maggie. We, we performed the duo, Jolie Blonde. But th- those were the first strains. Uh, that one in Diggy Diggy Low, well, I remember um, picking it out on the one string of the violin. And then uh, three weeks later, I had my first official fiddle lesson with Barbara Lamb. She was uh, just three years older than me at that point. So she was 14 and I was 11, but th- she was really basically all we could find she charged uh, $4 for a lesson, and I took off like a rocket. I, I started learning tunes right and left. My very first tune was uh, Boil em Cabbage Down that I learned from Barbara, and um, and then, you know, Wake Up Susan and Arkansas Traveler and Old Joe Clark, on and on. And within months, I was getting pretty good and started to enter local fiddle contests then I met Benny Thomason, the great icon from the Texas fiddle world who was retired up here, a living two hours south of Seattle. And he just plucked me out of nowhere. He saw me play in a hallway at a school in Oregon where we, I was warming up for a little tiny fiddle contest, the little kids division. He started talking to my mother and said, I want to teach this boy. And what did you think of this this guy you never met suddenly coming into your life and saying, I want to teach this? Well, I was already, you know, just I, I admired him, loved him. I, I We had already seen him play a few weeks before at Weezer at the National Fiddle Championships. And uh, my mother was trying to swing it to make it work uh, financially. And she said, we just can't afford you. And I said, he said, I'll, uh, I'll teach him for free. And they said, we can't afford the gas to get down to your place two hours south of Seattle. He said, if you can get him down here on Saturdays, I'll teach him the entire day. And that was the, that was the deal. And so we, we journeyed down there every other Saturday, every other weekend for uh, 
uh, more than three years, three and a half years, from uh, age 12 through 14, uh, 15, when he went back to Texas for a year and then returned when I was 16. He was a, a great mentor. Sometimes my lessons lasted a day and a half. He would allow us to just stay overnight in our car or when, if it was very cold, we'd, we could sleep on the floor in his trailer. And then we'd wake up the next morning on Sunday and start learning tunes again. So I was, sometimes I was learning like five tunes in one weekend. And they weren't just learning the tunes, but learning his variations. And then he would work with me trying to come up with my own versions and variations of the tunes and the classics like Sally Gooden. And, uh, you know, just it was a, uh, when I think about that experience, it was unique, singularly unique uh, in, in the history of fiddling probably to have that kind of access to, uh, as a student, to one of the greatest fiddlers that ever lived. So the person who drove you down, was that your mother? So she would stay that whole time. Yeah, she would. My mother and my younger sister, we we made this journey together. And I, I remember um, all we did was learn breakdowns. And we would concentrate on developing my approach to the breakdowns that was different from Benny's. I mean, by the time I got out of his place and entered a fiddle contest, my version of the tune that he taught me would be quite different and sometimes completely different it was an, and he didn't teach anybody else that way he had a few other students that he would do the regular hour lessons with and he would give them set versions of things that he'd worked on but with me it was a it was a complete creative lesson i think he saw something in me that was uh, in his image and um, he wanted i felt this a uh, tugging for for me to carry on his legacy how old was he uh he was uh, at that point he was 65 he seemed a little older than that because he had a rough life and um a hard life but boy what a, a genius yeah, as a musician i would consider him kind of fiddle the fiddler's version of bach where he would come up with these genius masterpieces he would yeah, the, the the real epic fiddle tunes in the American repertoire that we know today, like Sally Johnson or Dusty Miller, Billy in the Low Ground, the things that have all these eight, ten variations. I mean, th these were his signatures. This is, uh, as far as I can tell, he's the one that came up with the long-form fiddle tune, other than his own teacher, Eck Robertson, coming up with the original 13 variations of Sally Gooden. But I think uh, Eck really only did that with one tune, where Benny was able to do that with several. So he created a, a repertoire that fed the fiddle contest. And he started preparing me to enter the fiddle contest. And I became, uh, by the time I was 13, I was one of the, the biggest champions out there, uh, entering competitions all over the country and making a name for myself. Here's a vintage recording of the late, great Benny Thomason fiddling his way through the tune Laughing Boy. Two questions I have, and the first is about Benny again. Uh, was he married? Yes, uh, his wife, uh, B, B E A, B Thomason, and um, she would often just you know would cook us dinner because we were there into the night uh, uh, every time. So she would cook us usually chicken dinner, and um, 
Did they did they have much money? No. They were living in a trailer. And um, so those first three years, three and a half, th- yeah, three years, he was living in a small trailer on the Klamath River near the Oregon border. And um, his son, he had four grown children. One of those grown children moved up to do, I think, some logging work in the state of Washington. And that's what prompted Benny and B to visit at one time. And they, they liked the weather and liked the fishing, decided to stay for a little bit. I don't think that they envisioned staying very long because they actually didn't see their son that much. I mean, we were there every other weekend and he rarely came around. But um, he had three other grown children in Texas who had his grandchildren. So it was a, a, a big sacrifice for him to be up here on a family level. I mean, he certainly wasn't really working up here. He was basically retired and disabled, had a bad back from uh, being in a being in the auto body shop for you know most of his career as a as a car repair. So he's person. collecting Social Security and yeah, just a little bit and um, so just he was to get by. he wasn't a symbol to you of a life of fame or well maybe fortune when you're learning from him that's not what you're getting as far as where he's directing you in life musical fortune <laughs> yeah yeah he had he was plenty rich with uh talent and joy and uh, admiration people really admired him around here and from afar as well but he was uh, an incredible man one of the nicest people i'd ever been around he just he he made me sort of his uh, protege, and almost kind of a surreal relationship. He he went back to Texas, and I became devastated uh, at age fifteen. And I I talked a little bit about it on the show today uh, because I wanted to play uh, my version of "Somewhere Over the Rainbow," which that, that beautiful classic pop popular melody, and I arranged a a fiddle waltz out of it dreaming of a better tomorrow because I was so depressed that I lost my teacher and things were falling apart in my family. And then he came back out of nowhere. A year later, all of a sudden he appears in Washington again from Texas. We thought he was for sure going to stay down there forever. After all his grandchildren, all his grandchildren, he had one, one of his sons, uh, Jerry Thomason, who was an incredible guitar accompanist that I would often use whenever I could when I was in a fiddle contest and he was there. He had uh, seven children at that time, um, eventually nine. He had seven children that, that Benny loved. But all of a sudden he was back up here with B again and contacted B and wanted to make sure that um, I was okay. And uh, it was such an, looking back on it, it seems a kind of unbelievable story. There was something, there was a connection that we had that pulled us together. And it so happened that about the same time that he got back, I started to get back into music through my guitar playing as well. That was when I wrote the uh, the album and, and played uh, Markology with uh, David Grisman, Tony Rice, and some of the other big-time newgrass and bluegrass people. And then I met Stefan Grappelli when I was 17 and auditioned for him and he took me on to play in his group and so I moved to San Francisco and started playing with Stefan Grappelli I played with Stefan at Carnegie Hall so Stefan became my final teacher and when Benny realized that I was set and he asked me are you okay now um, you know and I said I'm, I'm doing really well Benny I'm, I'm with Stefan and we're touring all over the place, and he's teaching me. And then Benny, within a few months, moved back to Texas. So there was this incredible connection we had here in the Northwest, me and the Texas icon legend, <laughs> who, and I was too young to leave home, so it was almost as if he came here to mentor me. But he didn't feel a sense of, uh, was there a sense of sorrow that, You'd gone on to another teacher. Did you ever sense that? I never sensed it. He, I think he was so proud. You know, like, I think he was one of those amazing people that that maybe in the beginning 
he he saw me in his image, but then he realized that I was going to go to the left and to the right. You know, like I was I was just spreading my wings and and uh, heading in different directions. And he was, I think, he was truly joyful about it. And I think that we both felt like every single day of my future, I would think about him and I would talk about him and and spread his word and spread his music, no matter what kind of music I was playing. His spirit. His spirit. His spirit is you know, within me, no matter what I'm doing. It doesn't matter. I, I could play one of his fiddle tunes that he taught me, but I could play something else completely different and he's still there. And I think people still get it as well. And, and he got it. That's cool. And the one thing I, I was going to go back to is this thing that's happening with your younger sister at the same time. How important was that, that she was part of this process? Well, she was inspired by this whole thing and she started to learn how to play the fiddle. And she got quite good. There were very few children playing the fiddle at this point in our history. The early 1970s, there was virtually no child playing the fiddle, you know. The first time I entered the National Fiddle Championships, I was in the junior-junior division, which was 12 and under. So they did have that, but there was only three kids in it. And this was the National Championship. There was three kids under 12, and there were only eight children under 18 in the junior division. That was the 1973. And there was 300 total in the contest. So the vast majority of the contestants were over 65 and a bunch, you know, um, middle-aged. Is this but, in Weezer? Yeah. Idaho? Yeah, Weezer, Idaho. Idaho. Yeah. Very few children. So when my sister started playing, she was three and a half years younger than me. So she was young really young so while i didn't even start until i was 11 she started when she was eight and that was really young for any kind of fiddler at that time and and she got a lot of attention and she played for a couple of years benny helped her a little bit um she didn't have consistent lessons from anybody but a lot she got a lot of attention but she ended up dropping the fiddle mainly because I overshadowed her so much. And she was a real, she wanted to be an individual separate from her big brother. And so she got into dancing. She became a professional dancer like my parents were. Interesting. So in, in the world of classical music, the child prodigy, you there can often be a real dark side to that. It's a child is spending all their time learning the repertoire, training themselves to do this very unusual posture, which doesn't really come naturally. I mean, I think some people pull it off. I've been playing fiddle for 40 years, and I still, you know, that neck thing, you know, every once in a while. I mean, it's really hard to feel like it's just a natural thing to do. Mm-hmm. And Daryl Langer was talking about that. He says, everything's up here. Everything's above your heart. So mm-hmm. just your circulation is terrible <laughs> right off the bat, you know. It's not a natural thing. Is there something uh, almost a saving grace that this is happening in, in a more folk idiom than in that classical world of being a child really accomplishing things. How would you compare, you know, your coming to the violin primarily through the folk music world rather than through the classical music? What do you think would have happened had your family had the, the funds and they could have sent you to those teachers who might have been much more determined and... Uh, so perfection is always the driving force. Yeah. You know, my the conduit that I was inspired by uh, with music was through the creative process. Now, it, it in, I turn out to be technically proficient because of my, abil- my musical ability or technical ability. But that's not what whatever, that's not what really drove me. Matter of fact, I'm I don't even know if I would be playing if I, if I hadn't had the uh, the ability to be uh, creative, improvise, write some things, arrange tunes, be in a band, contribute to a band. I loved all that stuff. That's what really, I think, saved me as a kid. I don't know if I would have, um, if, if that was sort of like uh, cut out of my childhood experiences, 
I don't know. I, I, I might not have made it as a musician. I was so, you know, I even, I remember telling my mother, while I practiced a lot on guitar, I got technically very proficient. And uh, also I used guitar as a creative tool as well. But I told my mother, I said, I feel so special about the fiddle mom when I was 12. I said, I want to use the fiddle as my emotional outlet. And I even told her, I said, I, I wasn't going to practice things over and over. I was only going to play things that moved me. If the spirit was there, then I'd be playing. If, if not, I'm going to put the fiddle in the case. And I was telling her this at, at age 12. And so she trusted me enough to, to go with it, you know. They, they, they certainly were impressed with my progress. So she wasn't that quick to jump on me and, and say, no, do what your teachers want or do what I, I want you to do. So it was the great experiment. Um, for me, I was also taking some piano and that was very technical uh, oriented. So I, had, I created this sort of my private laboratory of, of uh, approaches uh, to music learning where with piano, it was basically all technical. Like I would do scales and two-handed scales constantly. And and I don't even play piano today. I mean, I know about piano. I can write for piano, but I don't enjoy trying to play the piano. With the guitar, it was sort of 50-50. I, I did practice a lot of scales and modes and worked on my technique. But I also wrote a lot of music and improvised a lot. And guitar lasted a long time for me. I, I had a I had the passion to play guitar up into my 30s, and then I kind of went by the wayside. And the the fiddle is really the 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 instrument that I didn't do anything like that. I didn't practice scales on it. I just I went for the music and the emotional content, and um, and I, I let the music be. But my muse and um, and also my uh, my guiding light, you know, I I I use the the breakdowns to to learn how to bow better, you know, and I I learned I use my improvisation to 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 learn how to finger faster and and so forth. So everything was driven from a creative standpoint with the violin. On top of playing the fiddle, you're playing the guitar. A little piano, that's just got to be taking a huge chunk of time, no matter how you do it. And so you have a social life as a kid, you know, your buddies running down the street, whatever kids get up to. Did you have a problem with that? Or were you like, no, I'm okay. This is what I do. Or did you ever feel that sense that, that, the, that the fiddle was exacting a price? And maybe a, a price you are more than willing to pay, and maybe now many years later you look back and say, that was a good price to pay. But a price of other things that weren't there that, let's say, other kids would be doing. Well, I, I did get into skateboarding and uh, at 14. And skateboarding became the thing that I did the most, actually, probably <laughs> a year in and year out. And um, so that was my kid thing. And I got together with my buddies and we skateboarded a lot. I mean, every, every day that it wasn't raining in Seattle, <laughs> uh, we were out there. And um, so that was a wonderful thing. It, it felt like um, the pavement beneath those four wheels felt like freedom for me. And as I said, I had a, a, a bit of a troubled childhood um, with, with, with death and alcoholism in my immediate family. And and um, I, I, I think that the, the violin probably saved my life. It, 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 was, it was like that skateboard uh, going down the street, but I, with the violin, I could, kept, I could keep going. I could transport myself to better places, and, uh, and the music was powerful enough for me, and the journey with the instrument was everything. And, uh, and all along the way, I had audiences. I was playing for people, and they were moved by my talent. And um, it was just, you know, just keeping my head together and ma make, making sure that um, I was responsible uh, to my talent. That was one of the things my mother 
impressed upon me was that um, you've been given a gift. You should give back. You should teach. Even when I was a kid, I was teaching. I had, when I was 12 years old, I had like 15 students. So when I wasn't practicing and learning music, I was teaching, I was sharing my music with students, even at, at that young age. So all these years later, it's, 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 it's no wonder I created the O'Connor Method, and now tens of thousands of children are learning through my books. All the things you were doing, where did you get the time? I, I, I know, and more. You know, I, I did go to public school. <laughs> I was pretty much gone all summer uh, entering competitions and um, going to festivals. And like I said, my, my lessons with Benny just themselves were, you know, every other weekend was the whole weekend by the time you drove down there and got back. And then I was writing music. I was writing beginning at, uh, you know, at that young age, I was recording and arranging my tunes. And then by the time I was uh, a mid-teenager writing pretty much my whole al- you know, album that I was going to record for Rounder Records and um, I think early on, I probably developed a, a, an acute sense of time management. Somehow, I would probably point to that as one of my models for success. I was able, to this day, it, I think it astonishes some how much I've accomplished artistically. Um, you know, I have several bands I lead currently. I have nine concertos I've composed uh, two symphonies, numbers of string quartets, and I'm ranging all these duos that you heard today. And and uh, I have two children <laughs> and a, a wonderful, beautiful wife. And but there's room. There's room. I mean, I think I think my mother was. Uh, we had the kind of family where it wasn't. Uh, she didn't uh, schedule us all day long. It was like it was open-ended. We could find our own way. Part of that was just due to circumstances. My my dad was really not present in my life. I, I mean, I, I didn't really have a father necessarily. I can only remember, like, say, playing catch with him once. I, you know, there was not really anything going on. He was always gone and an alcoholic. My mother was sickly. So we, we had this open-ended day. Um, it seemed like it was forever from after school, say at 2.30, to when we went to bed. There was, it was just seemed like a forever you know, period of time. And we were just filled it as best as we could. Played outside, played hard, practiced, wrote music. And, uh, and it seemed like the, the time just went on forever. Just give me a great image. I don't know if you want to respond to this, but uh, so many people, when they look at fast fiddle tunes or complex tunes, they're very anxious because, my God, all those notes, and i got to get them all in in that time. And But somehow you get to a place in music where you realize you have huge amounts of time between each note. Mm-hmm. And you can play in that time. And you can move the note slightly ahead of the beat or behind the beat. Uh, that's That's a different place and time and uh, great gift yeah I mean I, I've known for my fast playing of course but so certainly known for my slow playing too people really love my my ballads and my waltzes and my slow I've written so many slow pieces and uh, you know and the blues you know I'm known for my bluesy playing just a, a complete experience really it's like I I love all the facets of music making. It's almost like you have a gauge and you can turn time up and down, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. When uh, Maggie and I play Appalachian Waltz together, it's almost as if there's sections of it where almost time stands still. Our bows just keep on going, and you can feel the moment in the room, and people are there with us, but it just feels like time stands still. Music is a very powerful thing. Uh, that way, um, really important, communicable kind of uh, music uh, is, uh, is, 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 is something that I've really 
live for. I really, I mean, I think I'll always be the type of player that wants to perform. And, uh, you know, for years I was a studio player and I didn't perform live. And uh, I, I think uh, that had its time and place for me. But now I don't really want to be in the studio anymore. Even when I record my records, I look for a hall. I look for any place that reminds me of performing. <laughs> and uh, matter of fact, we're, we just recorded a few weeks ago in a, in a concert hall, set up my, my mics and uh, choose to record in a, in a live music space. I get a good feeling about that. But I've also spent a lot of time in the studio in my past, so it's not like uh, I did. I, I, I undernourished that part of it. We wind up part one of my interview with Mark with the story of the white fiddle. In part two of this podcast, Mark tells the story of how his mother attended a contest where Mark was competing shortly before her death. He also shares his thoughts about how best to teach children the joys and possibilities of the violin. When I was getting good at fiddling and especially at the breakdowns with Benny Thomason, he really encouraged me to uh, compete. And um, he was an old competition fiddler. He was the you know, th- three times world champion and 15 times Texas state champion. But he said, you're a sensitive young man he would say to me. He said, maybe the contests are not for you. I said, I'll do it, Benny. You know, um, He was failing in his playing at that point. You know, he wasn't as good as he was. And I felt some responsibility for, for he gave me so much attention. And then as soon as I started to win actual money, I realized that I could actually uh, buy instruments from, from those earnings and support myself. I didn't have access to any funds uh, for to buy instruments. But the, the fiddle that I ended up winning all those contests on, Benny gave me. It was the white painted fiddle that was hanging in his uh, little trailer. When I came down for a lesson, I, I looked at it and said, what is that? And uh, Benny said, you should try that, Mark, you know, and and my mother was saying, you know, I think he needs to get upgraded to a better instrument. And Benny did have a lot of good fiddles laying around, several under his bed and under the couch and so forth, uh, like the old fiddlers would, would keep them. And, uh, but the white fiddle just spoke to me. It just, it was, it was um, an unreal fiddle. To this day, it, it was um, uniquely remarkable. It was... Um, it was a, it was a cannon. I mean, it, you could hear, you could hear me warm up across a field, on that fiddle, and and it scared a lot of people because I was there to compete and, and usually win and beat the old older guys, and I became a, a nemesis for a lot of the old fiddlers that did not enjoy getting beat by a kid, and the white fiddle seemed to be a some kind of. Uh, a metaphor for for uh, a bad day for them, you know? So to try to reach out to everybody, I had everybody sign sign the fiddle. Uh, it was right after Sharpies came out, actually. And so everybody embraced the idea uh, to some extent that they were going to sign my white fiddle. And nobody was having uh, people sign instruments back then. I, I, I believe this was the first of its kind. Now a lot of people do it, especially cheaper uh, instruments, of course. But the the fiddle just spoke through a microphone, and it, especially back in the the bad days of poor PA's and poor microphones, it just honked. It, it honked through there, and it just cut like no other fiddle. And um, in some ways, I could almost get twice as loud as some of those old old timers. Just just beat them with volume. I was able to get such a big, thick sound. And uh, it was it recorded well, too. I, I recorded Sop in the Gravy with it, my album for Rounder, all the fiddle tunes. And years and years later, after it was hanging up in the Country Music Hall of Fame for 15 years, got it back out, fixed up the cracks, 
brought it out to one of my string camps, and a famous violinist, Rachel Barton Pine, brought her Stradivarius to the camp. And we were, the faculty found ourselves in my suite and in a big circle, and we were, she kind of wanted to hand, she handed the Stradivarius around to everybody to to take a tryout on. And uh, several, uh, there was a, definitely a couple people in our faculty circle, some of the fiddlers that had not even held a Stradivarius before. So everybody was very excited. And I just had got the white fiddle back out of the shop. I hadn't played it in years. I mean, you know, it had been in the museum for 15, and, and I hadn't played it for about 10 or 15 before that. And so I thought, you know, from the uh, sublime to the ridiculous, I'm going to pass out, pass around the, the white fiddle too. And it followed the Stradivarius around the circle. And you could tell on people's faces that they were blown away with that white fiddle. And a lot of people didn't really want to say anything because they were so appreciative of the Stradivarius being there and Rachel bringing it. And then two, two or three of the fiddlers came up to me after, just a little later on in the party that night and said, I got to tell you, that white fiddle beats the heck out of that Stradivarius. <laughs> It was painted white. Benny found it um, in a barn. Um, he would he went fishing with his uh, neighbor and uh, came back, and they were cleaning tackle in the barn. And Benny looked up and saw this white painted fiddle as a decor a barn decoration. He didn't have any strings or chin rest or anything, and no no pegs, just painted white, enamel white. And uh, so when I got it, we, we talked to a couple of experts and with fiddle repair, and they said, well, you could strip the enamel off and, and put some you know real varnish on it, but it could change the sound. Probably will change the sound. So we just left it with the white enamel. Did you ever get a hint as to who made it? We think it was a Czechoslovakian, probably 1890s. And it was painted, basically, it was, you know, just painted for this barn. And uh, it turned out to be one of the greatest fiddles probably, you know, ever, especially for that era. And uh, this is absolutely the counterpoint for the Red Violin movie. Yeah, I mean, is. this would be a much funnier and better yeah. movie. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, the, the White the, Violin. The white. I can see. I can see these fiddlers <laughs> yeah. blanching. You know, yeah. these old guys with the beers. Like, oh, not the white. Violin. I know. Here the it comes. The kid's bad enough. Yeah. but the white. No, I mean the my reputation spread <laughs> like wildfire with that white fiddle. Now my mother and I showed up in Galax, the the big competition, the fiddlers' convention in Galax when I was fourteen. They had already heard about the kid from Seattle who just won the Grand Masters down in Nashville and with the white fiddle, and they wouldn't let me enter. Um, and the, the judges all met during the registration process. They said, we can't have him enter this contest and possibly win it. The, the, the reputation precedes him, and we're going you know, to ask you to leave the grounds. And so we couldn't even stay to see the contest let alone enter it, of course. And we had security, they had security walk us off the property, my mother and I and my little sister. Oh, um, they said uh, their reasoning was if I won the fiddle contest in Galax, Virginia at that time in 1976, there'd be a riot. That's what they said. <laughs> this is the Moose Club, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> yeah, so it was very controversial for... Uh, this all to happen, but it was, um, in in a way, it was magic because it's. It reminded me that I was a part of a big story, and the story was going to feed me with all kinds of creative ideas that I was going to spring from. Matter of fact, there's a movement of my symphony that that I used uh, from that image in Galax. I remember seeing the valley full of fiddlers and buck dancers. And it was an image that was, I always, that uh, impacted me because I could only see it for just the hour or two we were there before we were asked to leave. And uh, I never went back because I never felt like I, I needed to uh, honor them by dishonoring my family and, and telling my mother to leave with her children. But it was, it was 
it was interesting to 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 realize that I was a part of a transformation with our music that children would one day be encouraged to 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 play the fiddle and and be a part of it and we weren't we weren't going to be turned away that's absolutely fascinating how did your mom react to that what was what was the impact on her well she was disappointed because she wanted me to experience the major I mean, since I got good at this thing, you know, she wanted me to experience the major championships in the in the major conventions. You know, it was never important for her to see me win. I don't, I don't believe, but she wanted me to participate. But if if participation meant just jamming or or sitting in with someone on stage or something like that, she would have been happy if I didn't enter. But I, I am, um, I felt like. My father was very different. I got a, a different message from him. And, you know, he wanted me to contribute to the household. And I had to, you know, either make money at music or help him with labor. And uh, he, he gave me a ultimatum by the time I was 12 and 13 that it was either I get to practice and get out there and make some money and bring home or I was going to be working with him under houses repairing foundations that was that was that was the mentality so my mother was trying to sugarcoat it but I felt the pressure and so even though um um I I had fun it was it was a weird kind of thing my the, the my real family ended up being the fiddle competitors you know, a lot of them I looked upon as my father figures. And, but that's how I viewed my own father as somewhat of someone that didn't really nurture me anyway. And like was, it was almost more competitive with me, challenged me. So, so a lot of the older guys that I was competing against in the fiddle contest, they also mistreated me too, but I, I thought that was normal. That's how my, that's how my, my family was, and I actually liked them even more so because at least they played really cool music. And in some ways, I didn't mind losing because they everybody would like me more. I could jam with them afterwards. But at some point, um, I knew that that winning meant something for my music career, and that was the that was the thing that I wanted the most is to to get out of my neighborhood and 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 make something of myself and in the early days there wasn't much of a chance for a child to play anywhere other than one of these kinds of festivals or contests and uh, certainly couldn't play in the club circuit so although i did a few they would sneak me in but couldn't rely on it so it was a good training ground it was very similar to real life in music business <laughs> you had your rivals and people that were trying to stick it to you and you had your fans out there and people that were not rooting for you just kind of like real life in music and you're also coming of age so you know, are you dealing with liquor you're dealing with yeah groupies and girls and all i mean and you're young yeah well i got in trouble out there that that was one of the things that the the older fiddle competitors would do with me was to try to slip some liquor in my coke and things like that. Try to get me a little tipsy when I was entering rounds. I I played many contests, um, kind of a little drunk as a teenager, and not really fully knowing what was happening. I would get kind of talked into or dared, you know with the hopes that I would play worse. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't do as well in the contest so they could, they could get me. But um, I suppose sometimes it worked, but I won a lot of contests though. I had a, in, I believe we added up, it was about a 50% winning record, over 200 contests. And um, I have the, still the, the greatest winning record in the big competitions, the national and the grandmasters percentage-wise in the amount. 
What's the contest that just stands out? Well, it was the the first wins, you know, the first win against the big guys. I think the first Grandmasters was huge. That was the biggest uh, competition field, I think, of any fellow contest in history, that, as much as we can think. Everybody who was anybody was there. I won against my own teacher, Benny Thomason. Major Franklin was there, Lewis Franklin, Texas Shorty. Uh, the Canadian champions, Rudy Meeks was there, Graham Townsend, uh, J.D. Perkins, the, the Southern great Sam Bush was in the field, uh, Terry Morris, Dale Morris, the Morris brothers, the Solomons, both Solomons were in it, Vernon Solomon. It was, it was a, a field that's like there's never been before in fiddle competition history as we can trace it. And somehow I got on top. Everybody thought it was a fluke. How could this 13-year-old win? I came back and won the contest two more times and got second two more times, all while I was a teenager. Here is Mark as a young man playing a portion of the title tune of his first album, Sop in the Gravy, on that seemingly magical white fiddle. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. Thank you.